Hope I'm not the first person to welcome you to church today, but if I am, welcome. Um, please uh, grab a Bible and go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Here at PBC, we work our way through books of the Bible a little bit at a time. We find ourselves picking up where we left off last Lord's Day in Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the pew in front of you, and you'll find Luke chapter 16 beginning on page 876. The passage we'll be considering is verses 19 to 31, which in the church Bible is referred to as the rich man and Lazarus. So here's what I'll do. I'll uh, read the whole passage, 19 down to 31. I'll pray and ask for the Lord's help on our time together in this passage, and then we will uh, work our way through it. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you through your son Jesus, and we ask that you would grant to us your Holy Spirit by whom we may have understanding. We ask that you would write these truths upon our hearts and that this seed of your word would find good soil in our hearts that it may take root down and bear fruit up for the glory of Christ and for the advance of his gospel. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. With this in mind, 334 years ago, our Baptist forebearers explained. They wrote, God appointed a day wherein he would judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. All persons that lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ and give an account of the thoughts, words, and deeds and receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. They go on. The righteous will go on into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked, who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast aside into everlasting torments, punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from His glory and His power. They go on even further. The day of judgment is unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and always be watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord may come and may ever be prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. With all that is going on in the world today, there's a lot of talk about the end, about when Jesus comes back the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not all of it is true, to be sure. Not all of it is even helpful. But it is understandable. Because sorrows, whatever their origin, and disruptions, whatever their origin, have a way of disaffecting us from what those old Baptists called carnal security, or security in the things of this world. In fact, on Thursday, I was hanging out with a pastor friend of mine, and I just asked him how he was doing, and the quick answer from him was, just want Jesus to come back. Me too, brother. Me too. We pick up where we left off last week in another parable from the Lord Jesus, another story that Jesus told to communicate a lesson. And Let us remember that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, these clean-cut religious elites who, who Luke says were lovers of money, who Jesus says sought to justify themselves before men. Now, we, we all know that the Pharisees were no fans of Jesus Christ. They grumbled at him that he received sinners and ate with them. They ridiculed him for exposing their own hypocrisies. Externally, the Pharisees appeared to be devoted to God, but as we know from the witness of Scripture, their hearts were far from God. One clear window into the true state of one's heart is how one uses money and possessions. So the Lord in Luke 16 continues to talk about money and possessions. The Lord often spoke of money and possessions, and Jesus' view, the biblical view of riches, is not a simplistic 
view. It's a sophisticated view. It's a nuanced view. It's a careful view. The Bible teaches that money and possessions are neither good nor bad. They're, they're tools and they're tells. They're tools to be leveraged for the kingdom of God and the purposes of God. And they are tells. Money and possessions tell about the condition of our heart. So you've heard me say it many times before, generosity is never a matter of dollars and cents, but a matter of the heart. So the Lord is returning to something that he taught us earlier in chapter 16, which is that what we do in this life carries on into eternity. So what we believe about the next life determines how we will live in this life. In other words, your eschatology determines your biography. What you believe about tomorrow shapes how you will live today. So the big idea of this parable, best as I can tell, is this. That Jesus Christ has secured an eternity in glory for his people. He's secured comfort for his people. So repent, believe, and leverage your life for his glory and the advance of his gospel. We'll keep that on the screen for a minute so you can write that down if you like taking notes. That Jesus Christ has secured an eternity of glory and comfort for his people. By his life, death, and resurrection. Because of this, we repent. We turn away from our sins. We turn to him. We believe in Jesus and we leverage our lives for his glory and for the advance of his gospel. The outline as we work our way through this passage is a rather simple one, four points, all of them having to do with the number two. Two people, two places, two petitions, and two applications. Two people, two places, two petitions, and two applications. I'll repeat them as we go along. Let's take a look at verses 19 to 21 again, two people being contrasted in the Lord's parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, some have questioned whether or not this is a parable because it doesn't seem to follow the same structure that many of the Lord's parables, for example. Um, this is the only parable the Lord, Lord told that he gave someone a personal name. But as we will see, there's a reason why he gave the poor man the name Lazarus. This is a parable. And in this parable, two people are contrasted. The rich man contrasted with the poor man. The Lord describes the rich man as clothed in purple and fine linen. He's eating like a king. Purple clothes were very expensive clothes in Jesus' day because the process of dyeing something purple was very laborious and cost a lot of money. And this is why this color, purple, was then associated with prestige and royalty. The fine linen that Jesus describes here is actually a reference to the man's underwear. <laughs> he had his undies imported from Egypt. 
He ate only the best food. So I imagine him with a personal chef who cooks with only the best ingredients, locally sourced non-GMO ingredients. And this man feasts like a king sumptuously every day. Even this man's house is luxurious. The word that Jesus uses for gate in verse 20 actually refers to a type of ornamental gate that would usually be found in temples and in palaces. So this man lives in a gated mansion with designer clothes, designer undies, eating the finest foods. He was a rich man. And at his expensive gate, there was laid a poor man whom Jesus names Lazarus. Now, this is not Lazarus that was raised from the dead in John's gospel. They have the same name, and the reason that they have the same name actually is rather important to the parable. The, the, the Greek iteration of a Hebrew word, Hebrew name, so Lazarus is the Greek iteration of a Hebrew name, which means God helps. And so this man's name is reflective of this man's story. There is no social welfare program for the poor in Jesus' day. No social welfare program for the sick in Jesus' day. The only way that a poor person, a sick person, could get along would be through the generosity of rich people. And so someone lays this man Lazarus at the rich man's gate. He can't even bring himself there. He has to be laid there. And the clear message to the rich man is, this man needs your help. He needs your pity. He will not live long without one of those things. The Lord says that Lazarus is covered in sores, these loathsome open sores, and he's suffering greatly because of these sores. His sores would have made him ritually unclean which meant that he would not have been able to go to the temple for worship. In those days, many people believed that in order for Messiah to come, God's people needed to be holy and be righteous and keep the Torah. And so someone like Lazarus, who was unclean, presented a liability to this, and he would have been cast aside by the society at large. And they believed that poverty and sickness were simply the result of one's own sin. It was a punishment from God. Verse 21 says that he desires to be fed which, with what falls from the rich man's table. He desires to be fed with the food that falls from the table, which is a strange thing to be hoping for. I mean, were people in those days just so messy that so much food fell off the table that poor people could just kind of gather it all up and live on it? Well, not exactly. In Jesus' day, people ate off of tables that were sat very low to the ground, and they didn't have chairs like we have. They would lie on their side, and they would eat reclined. They didn't have spoons and forks like we have. They uh, would have just one common dish in the middle of the table, and everybody would be given flatbread, and they would, just like in many parts of the world today, they would just kind of scoop from the soup or stew or whatever it was, and they would just eat it. And so, as you can imagine, this has been a rather messy affair. You'd have juices running down and all over the table, and at the end of a rich man's dinner, he would 
take whatever, um, you know, his servants would take whatever leftover bread there would be. They would mop up with the bread and they would throw it back into whatever's left over from the meal and that they would cast it aside. They would cast it on the ground for the dogs. The food would fall from the rich man's table and it was given to the dogs. Now, don't think, whenever you read the scriptures, don't think dog like your Yorkshire terrier at home. Your cute little Yorkshire terrier isn't real. I hate to break it to you. It's a man-made thing, okay? Like, you, you can't, can you imagine a Shih Tzu running in the wild with the wolves? <laughs> like, natural selection doesn't account for cuddliness. That's all man-made. Dogs in Jesus' day were these mangy scavengers. They weren't pets. So don't think Fido, think like those turkey buzzards on the side of the road eating roadkill. That's what dogs were. They were scavengers. And Lazarus longs to be fed with the same quality of food as these scavenger dogs. In fact, we're, we read that even the dogs came and licked Lazarus' sores. And in my research of this passage, I couldn't work out whether or not this was a comfort to Lazarus or just another sign of Lazarus' destitution. But either way, the picture that Jesus is leaving with us is that this man has nothing and this man is nothing. He is unable to take care of himself. He is ritually impure. He has almost no hope for redemption. And he is fully dependent upon the generosity of others, namely a rich man who doesn't seem to give him the time of day. Two people. If we keep reading, we're going to see now two places. Let's pick up reading in verse 22. The poor man died. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. And Lazarus at his side. So the poor man dies. One wonders whether uh, he died from starvation or just from his condition, we don't know. What we do know is that God helped him, that the rich man also died, and that death was kind of the great equalizer between the two. You know, the rich man could spare himself the unpleasantries of hunger. He could spare himself the unpleasantries of cheap clothing, cheap undies, but he couldn't save himself from the reality that he was going to die, and he died. Death comes to all. Rich, poor, sick, healthy, doesn't, we're all going to die. Life is terminal. The rich man died and Jesus says he was buried. No burial is mentioned for the poor man. But Jesus does say that he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, literally Abraham's bosom. First century Jewish lore spoke of angels carrying the righteous dead to Abraham's bosom upon their death. Now remember, this is a parable. So the Lord is not necessarily teaching that when a Christian dies, angels carry him or her into paradise. It's, it's a story. Abraham was the father of the faith, the patriarch, the man that God chose through whom he would 
create the Jewish people. Abraham's side, his bosom, was a phrase that first appeared in the intertestamental period, so between the Old Testament and the New Testament in some Jewish writings, to refer to the place of the righteous dead, the sons of Abraham, what, what we would call believers, true Israelites, were expected to share in Abraham's inheritance in the world to come, into, in paradise at Abraham's side. Hades is the place of the dead. In the New Testament, sometimes Hades refers to just everybody who dies, the place that they go to when they die. And sometimes it refers to the wicked dead, the place where they are tormented and punished and await their final judgment at the end. So two places, Abraham's bosom and Hades, a place of paradise and comfort, a place of torment and anguish. The Pharisees believed that God's blessing came to those who kept God's law, that those who lived their lives separate from the impurities of the world would be blessed by God with riches and with health, and that those who had broken God's law would be punished with sickness and with poverty. Now, one may not immediately think that what we refer to as the health and wealth, prosperity gospel, and the legalism that we know is true of the Pharisees would be related, but in true fact, they are the same. The health and wealth prosperity gospel is just simply a different form, a different do-it-yourself kind of religion, the same thing as legalism. It's, it's, it follows the same formula. If you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this will happen. So imagine the shock of the Pharisees when Jesus explains in his story that Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's bosom, whereas the rich man, the son of Abraham, is buried. The one blessed by God appears in Hades, the place of the disembodied unbeliever, and he is in anguish, and in torment. Now, we should resist the temptation of asking too much of a parable in developing our doctrine of the afterlife. However, there are some things that we can draw from this parable. Notice the Lord envisions only two places in the afterlife. There is a place of conscious comfort, and there is a place of conscious torment. Friends, hell is real, and you really don't want to go there. And I'm not going to make any friends, and you're not going to make any friends by talking about hell. But the fact is, almost everything that we know about hell came from the mouth of Jesus himself. That no one talked about hell in the Bible more than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so if we are to take Jesus seriously and the words of Jesus seriously and the glory of Jesus seriously and the justice of Jesus seriously, then we must reckon with the realities that he taught us about hell. Also, the Bible teaches 
that what we do with Jesus Christ in this life determines where we will spend the next life in one of those two places. The Pharisees had rejected Jesus and ridiculed him. And the Lord is warning them with this parable that unless they hear God's word and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and mercy, that they will end up like the rich man in this parable. Other things that we can take from this parable is that Jesus is revealing to us that death is final and that there is no escape from either one of those two places into which you are placed. Between heaven and hell, a great chasm has been fixed and none may cross. There is no place called purgatory where the dead are purged of their wicked deeds and after which they're carried in to glory. Purgatory is a human fabrication just like a shih tzu, and it is a lie. There is only one life and no chance after death. Hebrews 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Which means then that reincarnation too is a human fabrication and a lie. There are no do-overs. There are no mulligans. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ and of Holy Scripture. Two people. Two places. And next we have in this parable two pleas. Two pleas. The first of which appears in verse 24 to 26. The man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me to send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. The rich man calls out to Abraham, calls him father. Yet he's separated from him. He sees Abraham far off. Now remember, Abraham is the father of those who believe. And this man is not a believer. He may have believed in God. He most certainly believed in God. But believing in God is nothing. Even the demons believe. But of course, we can't know his heart. Maybe he was a good person. But remember that money and possessions are like a window into the heart. This man's spiritual condition is revealed by his treatment of Lazarus. His money told on him. 
You understand that the, the two great commandments run together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. They run together. The second flows out from the first. Since the rich man could not find it in his heart to show love for Lazarus, we know he had no love for God. Does that sound overly simplistic? We'll take it up with the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So the rich man saw Lazarus, but because he didn't love God, he didn't love his neighbor. We know that the rich man saw Lazarus. He, he recognized Lazarus at, at Abraham's side. And he pleads with Abraham, send Lazarus to me. Send him to relieve me. I'm suffering. Send Lazarus to help. How many times had this man walked through his own gates past the monuments to his own riches and ignored the poor man who had been laid there? How many times had he looked with disdain upon this man with his loathsome sores? How many times had he ignored his appeal for mercy? And now it is the rich man who suffers and Lazarus who is comforted. But notice... The rich man is asking for relief, not for forgiveness. There's no mention of sorrow or grief over his sin. There's no conviction. There's no repentance. The rich man never once acknowledges his sin. He was blind to his sin in his life. He is blind to his sin in eternity. And Abraham rejects the rich man's plea. Lazarus can't bring you relief. You lived your life with no thought for the next. You cared only for your own pleasures and your own comforts. And there will be no relief from your anguish. The first plea is shot down. The second plea. Verse 27. And then he said, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers that he may warn them. For they also, I don't want them to come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Send Lazarus to my brothers, because apparently this rich man's brothers were like him, giving no thought to the afterlife, no thought for eternity. Send Lazarus, give them a warning. And Abraham's answer is shocking but I think profoundly instructive. 
Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen. Moses and the prophets is, as you know, a reference to the Bible. Abraham saying, your, your brothers have the Bible. They have the Tanakh, the law and the prophets. If they listen to the law and the prophets, they'll be convicted of their sin and they'll turn to the Savior and they'll be forgiven and they'll be saved. Paul said the same thing. It's young pastor Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he said, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the law and the prophets. And Paul says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's what, it's, what, it's what his brothers needed. It's what his brothers had. The law and the prophets. If they listen, they'll find the Savior. They'll find forgiveness. They'll find mercy. Well, the rich man disagreed. No, Father Abraham, they need more. They need more signs. They need more evidence. They need a miracle. Well, they do need a miracle. But it's not the same kind of miracle that the man's thinking. So he says, send someone back from the dead to tell them. They'll listen then. They'll repent. And Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, coincidentally, there was a man named Lazarus who came back from the dead, who was a sign to the power of God and life everlasting. And he did get, come back from the dead, and he did testify to the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. And guess what happened to those who heard him? And John chapter 12 says that the enemies of Christ tried to kill Lazarus after Jesus rose him from the dead. It didn't work then. It didn't work with them. Why is it going to work with this man's brothers? After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus himself, the chief priests paid hush money to the Roman guards who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. So, you, you take a guy and you kill him. And then you put him in a grave. And three days later, he comes up out of the grave, starts walking around and talking to people, and, the, and your solution to this is not, well, maybe, maybe we should listen to what he has to say. Instead, let's cover it up. I wonder if we've really considered just how hard the human heart is to the reception of the gospel apart from the miracle of the Spirit's regenerating work. You see, church, it's not more evidence that the unbeliever needs. The Lord has given the unbelieving world plenty of reasons to believe. Your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors, your family, 
They have the Bible. Scripture is sufficient to bear witness to the truth. What they need is the Spirit of God to open their eyes and to open their ears and to listen. For the Spirit of God uses the Word of God on the people of God to bring them to faith in the Son of God. That's what the unbelieving world needs. They don't need our gimmicks. They don't need our games. They need to hear about God the Son. They need Christ preached. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, friend, you don't need more evidence that the Bible is true and that Jesus is alive. You have all the evidence in front of you. You need to turn to God to read His Word to pray that the Spirit of God would give life to your dead heart. Take one of the Bibles in the pews in front of you home with you today and finish reading the Gospel of Luke. And as you're reading, pray that God the Holy Spirit would let you understand and see the glories of Christ and bring you to conviction of your sins and then turn to Jesus Christ, repent and believe. And then come back next week and stick around and keep learning more about God the Son and His glorious grace in saving sinners from hell. Friend, you don't have to share the fate of the rich man. You can have paradise and life everlasting. Do that today. Before you leave this place, tell someone you'd like to become a Christian. Two people, two places, two pleas. And so we close then on two applications of this parable. And the first is based on the reality that in this parable we are, we are all like Lazarus, beggars. And then like Lazarus, our final comfort comes not in this life, but in the next. And that the Lord has looked upon us Christians in our helpless estate. He saw us trapped and ruined by our sin and helpless and on our way to an eternity under His judgment. And He gave the life of His own Son whose death on the cross purchased our freedom and whose resurrection secured eternal life for us and the comfort that comes in paradise. For as in, all, as in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall live. We are all Lazarus, poor and sick, and God helped us. God showed mercy to us in this life and promises eternal comfort in the next. Our true life is the one to come. Luxury, comfort... Lasting health is not guaranteed in this life, but it has been secured for us in the next. And what we believe about tomorrow will determine how we endure today, how we endure sickness and suffering and sorrow and setbacks. And that suffering and difficulties and hardship 
are not an anomaly. 1 Corinthians 15 says that life is sown in dishonor and raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, raised in power. And so if the Lord is pleased to grant comforts to you today, you must recognize that these are fleeting and temporary comforts, that our real comfort comes in eternity. And if the Lord is pleased to allow sorrows today, you must recognize that these are fleeting and temporary sorrows and that our real comfort comes in eternity. That our eschatology, what we believe about the end, writes our biography. You know what that means? It means that if you know that real comfort comes in the next life, then you're free from the burden of trying to find it in this life. You're free from the despair that would come when you don't find it in this life. When you know that paradise is in eternity, you're free from the burden of trying to create paradise now. You're free from the discouragement that comes when paradise isn't built now, when it falls apart. And that brings us to the second application. Is it because we know that the true life is the life to come, we are then free to leverage this life for the glory of Christ and the advance of the gospel. We're free to store up our riches in heaven at the expense of our riches on earth. We're free to live below our means in order to give generously because we aren't encumbered by the responsibility to establish our sense of security here. So you can give your whole life to getting the good news of Jesus Christ out. You can leverage worldly wealth to see the excellencies of Christ proclaimed in Piqua, Miami County, and to the ends of the earth. You can live simply to support Bible translation so that Moses and the prophets can be heard in every tongue. You can live on less to see the gospel preached in Piqua and to the ends of the earth, locally and globally. A right understanding of the end, a consideration of the age to come, the life to come, means that the single mom as well as the CEO can both live free, unshackled, by the search for comfort in this life because they know that they've already received ultimate comfort in Christ for the next life. And thus they are free to shake off carnal security, free to be watchful, to spend and be spent on the advance of the gospel. And to live every day in light of eternity prepared to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray that now. Come, Lord Jesus.
come quickly. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In all of our hearts and all of our lives. Father, would you see to it that our bank accounts would be clear reflections of hearts that are moved by God's glory, moved by a love for God and the things of God and a desire to see the proclamation of the excellencies of Christ in the earth. Lord, forgive us for being like the Pharisees, like the rich man in Jesus' day, for thinking too much of this life and too little of the next. We have sinned. We have leveraged worldly wealth for worldly comforts. And let us do as you have commanded through your servant Paul. Let us seek the things that are above. Let us set our mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Let us remember that we have died and that our new life is hidden with Christ in God. Let this be the reality of our lives, that our day-to-day would be more affected by eternal realities than temporal ones. Spare us, O Lord, from wasting our lives for nothing, from the disappointment that will follow seeking carnal security. May the proclamation of the excellencies of Christ to the ends of the earth be funded by us, prayed for by us, celebrated by us, and enjoyed by us until Christ is all. Amen. Please stand to your feet as we seek God's word for the assurance of pardon. Today's assurance of pardon comes out of Isaiah chapter 44 where we read, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Please join us in one more song.